0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
1: Fans for Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. This is your host, Kevin Smith, with you for episode number 42 of our show. And this is the first episode that we're going to have that Gives us an opportunity to look ahead to a Super Bowl. We we didn't uh, we weren't doing this show at this point last year. We're not yet a year old on the call sheet, so we didn't get to weigh in on last year's Super Bowl contest. But we've got two weeks to talk about it this year. Uh, re- probably three weeks, really, when you think about it. We got this week and and next before the game, and then obviously we'll have the result episode. So it gives us lots to to consider. We're going to hit it from a bunch of different angles. Uh, so plenty of time to talk about those things. But first, as we always do, let's talk about a player who wore the number of the episode. This is episode 42, which means I get to talk about one of my all-time favorite NFL football players, and that is the great Ronnie Lott. I loved me some Ronnie Lott back in the day. He is a certifiable NFL legend, a- absolutely one of the best safeties to ever played the game. Won four Super Bowls over his Hall of Fame career with the San Francisco 49ers. But really, man, when you think about Ronnie Lott, for those of you who are old enough to remember him, and for those who don't, I feel bad for you because you missed out on uh, a guy who played the game at a time when you could play the game in a particular fashion. You missed out on a guy who was one of the most intimidating defenders of his era, the the 1980s and into the early 1990s, he and Lawrence Taylor were probably the best of that decade on the defensive uh, side of the ball. You know, I talked I've talked about before on the show how, as kids, we loved to pretend that we would be certain players when we were playing pickup football at the playground. In my era as a kid, you know, Earl Campbell and Walter Payton they were some of the favorites. And, and so were any of the Steelers and Eagles players, since they were the most popular teams in my area. But when I wasn't staking a claim to, to Jack Lambert on defense, right? When I always wanted to be Jack Lambert, but when I wasn't staking a claim to Jack Lambert, my go-to guy was Ronnie Lott. I mean, he was a missile at safety. I, I just you just picture any slant route, any post route, any deep cross, the wide receiver is going to get tattooed. And it was going to be number 42 standing, standing over him at the end of the play. He was a missile knifing in to separate opposing wide receivers from the football. Uh, great tackler in the run game, too. Boy, I, I remember a, a massive hit he put on Christian Okoye, who was a guy we honored when we were on episode number 35 here. The Nigerian nightmare, all 6'2", 260 of him. And Ronnie Lott coming up and absolutely dropping him in his tracks. I mean, Ronnie Lott played the game angry. And he, you know, he really brought a nasty element to those San Francisco teams of the 1980s who were widely considered to be sort of a finesse oriented ball club, you know, under the cerebral Bill Walsh and the ballet that was Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. But on the defensive side of the ball, a lot was a hammer, but you can't, you can't talk about Ronnie Lott without talking about the pinky story. I mean, for those who don't know, it's worth retelling I'm not sure some of the younger fans are familiar with it. So, so here's the story, right? In December of 1985, as the 49ers, kind of in the middle of their dynasty there, they played the Cowboys in the final game of the regular season. And Lott shattered his pinky finger while trying to make a tackle on running back Timmy Newsom. He, he broke all the little bones in there in a way that required surgery. There was really no debate about it. And the playoffs were coming up the next week, and that meant Lott would be out which obviously he didn't want to miss the playoffs. He pleaded with the team doctors to find a solution to let him play. But, I mean, they just gave him two choices. Either, you know, they could operate and they'd have to put pins in his finger and it would take two months to heal and he'd re- he'd miss the rest of the year. Or, and they didn't really say this seriously. They, I mean, they were serious if he chose the option, but they never expected him to, to choose it, that they could amputate his pinky finger from the first joint up in which case he could play right away. And so Ronnie Lott being Ronnie Lott, he chose the amputation. Ronnie Lott had a chunk of his pinky finger chopped off and he didn't miss a game. I mean, there's no way that this would even be considered in today's day and age. There's no way. I mean, football obviously was a different game back then. The players were different. The coaches were different. The mentality was different. Anybody who grew up around the time I did in the 1980s and 90s, and you played the game in that era, I, obviously you understand what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to romanticize it. You know, I'm not going to tell kids about how much better it was in my day, and we were tougher and football's soft now, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, football is not soft. Guys are bigger and faster and stronger than ever. The, the collisions are ridiculous. But players like Ronnie Lott, they were the product of a, of a tough society, probably a tougher society than we have now. Uh, and they knew a little bit about the dangers of the profession and the way the game was being played, but I don't think that they care too much. And, and you know, even even if they'd been given all the information they have now, I don't think they would have changed their way. It was a different world. I mean, concussions—they weren't things to be studied or remediated. They were things that you shook off because uh, you know you got your bell rung. That was the way that everybody talked about it back then. You just got your bell rung. Shake it off. And, and Ronnie Lott, he played the secondary like a predator, delivering concussions, sustaining concussions. I mean, just hitting. If you went near him, you were going to get hit and hit hard. And it was probably going to hurt a lot. And he was a man of his time. And, and it was a time and it was a style that was unsustainable. Uh, but I loved it, man. I, I loved it. You know, I didn't know any better. And by the way, losing that finger, it never slowed Ronnie Lott down. The next year, 1986, that was the best of his career. The year right after he had... Most of his pinky amputated. He hauled in 10 interceptions. Uh, He would go on to play nine more full seasons in the NFL after getting his pinky amputated and ultimately wind up in the hall of fame as one of the greatest safeties of all time. So, you know, one, one more note on Ronnie Lott. He has, he has said in hindsight that he regrets his decision. He's on the, he's on the record as saying like, he should have let the finger heal. He wishes somebody had talked some sense into him. I don't know if anybody could have talked sense into Ronnie Lott in those days, uh, there've been, been some great safeties over the years in, in the NFL. And as a Steelers fan, I think Troy, Troy Polamalu is my favorite player of the 21st century, but for my money, Ronnie Lott was the best. I played safety in high school. I played it in college. The best compliment I ever got as a football player came from my college position coach who yelled out at a practice one time during a tackling drill, my freshman year, he yelled out that Smith kid hits like Ronnie Lott. I mean, that that was like the greatest thing anybody could have ever said about me. He would, he would eventually go on to discover that I, I covered receivers like a defensive tackle, uh, which is to say I didn't, and that it was a good idea to get me off the field on third and long. But I always looked at Ronnie Lott as the perfect example of how football was supposed to be played, and I really tried to emulate him as best as I could, uh, except for the pinky part, of course, because that was just nuts. So anyway, number 42, the great Ronnie Lott. All right, so on to the week that was, man, and, and boy, was there a lot going on between the, the championship games and the coaching hires and, and obviously the Super Bowl matchup to consider. There's an awful lot of football news to digest. So, so I'm going to do something I've done a few other times on this show, a few times before, which is to compile a three-up, three-down list where we're going to look at three players or coaches or teams or, or simply football-related entities who had a good week, the three-up. Who's, who's up this week? And then we're going to look at three down, man, the three who didn't. So let's start with our three up. We'll do our three up uh, first. And, uh, And first up in our three up, the Kansas City Chiefs obviously had a great week. They won the AFC Championship game to reach their fourth Super Bowl in five years. But I think it was an especially satisfying win for the Kansas City Chiefs for three reasons in particular. Let's talk about those three reasons. Reason number one. This was a Kansas City Chiefs team that, for the first time in their in their mini dynasty, really that they're sort of putting together. And I and I don't say that uh, you know as hyperbole. I mean, getting to four Super Bowls in five years is a hell of a, an accomplishment. It's only been done once before by by the Patriots uh, in the teens. So so yeah, man. I mean, heck of a run. Even the Steelers at their best, they they did four and six. So four and five years for Kansas City. I, you know, they win another one. I mean, it's fair to, to to say, Hey, this is a little bit of a dynasty you got here, but it's the first year they've ever had to go on the road to get there. All three of their previous trips went right through Arrowhead. They were the number one seed in the AFC, or they got all their home games or all their, all their AFC games at home and they were able to win them in front of a home crowd. And now, you know, they were having to go on the road and play first in Buffalo in, you know, the, obviously the the cold climate and the, the difficult circumstances up there in front of that raucous Bills Mafia. And then secondly, to have to go into rainy Baltimore to play the top-seeded Ravens, who were absolutely dismantling the best teams in the league. Baltimore had won 11 games over teams with winning records. Uh, beating them by an average of more than two touchdowns per game. Think about that. The Ravens had beaten 11 teams with winning records by an average of more than 14 points per game. They just look like a juggernaut. And for Kansas City to go into both environments and win tough football games is a huge credit to the Chiefs and must be particularly satisfying. A second reason is... Uh, that this is this is a, a a unique and and again particularly satisfying run for the chiefs is that this was the year everybody really counted them out. I mean, each of the previous three Super Bowl runs were not surprising. The only thing that was surprising in that in that four- year stretch was when they lost at home to the Cincinnati Bengals a couple years ago. Uh, but this year is different. There weren't a whole lot of teams who picked the Chiefs to make it out of the AFC. Baltimore was the choice. I think that, that everybody uh, expected Buffalo was the hot name. I mean, the team that was playing the best at the end of the year, the bills, the chiefs were kind of like the third team. And I think most people thought that when they had to go on the road in Buffalo, they would lose, but they found a way to get it done. They didn't play a perfect game in Baltimore last Sunday. They, you know, but they but they were. They played a championship-level game. They played a game where you had to beat the Chiefs to win that football game. They did not beat themselves. And, and that's it, precisely what the Ravens did. The Ravens beat themselves with mistakes, turnovers, penalties, missed opportunities. And while Baltimore fell apart, Kansas City just stayed steady as she goes. They, they showed why they're a championship team. They defied the expectations. And so there's a second reason why this has got to be a particularly satisfying trip to the Super Bowl for the chiefs. And reason number three, they largely did it with their defense. They largely did it with their defense. They scored 17 points against the Ravens. And I think if you had told most people before the game that Kansas city was going to score 17 points against Baltimore in the AFC championship, the consensus would be that they would lose, but they did because the defense was excellent. Three turnovers that they produced, four sacks of Lamar Jackson. They frustrated the heck out of Jackson. Jackson was visibly upset multiple times during the game, slamming down his helmet, slamming down the football, uh, talking to himself, yelling at his teammates. They really got in Lamar Jackson's head. And that's really how Kansas City's been winning for most of the season. They have been winning games with a rebuilt defense that the Chiefs have recognized. They don't have the weapons on offense that they've had in the previous four years. But instead, now they turned it over to a young and exciting defense. So, winners of the week, man. And and number one on our three-up list, the Kansas City Chiefs. All right. Another another, uh, uh, winner here on the up list, the NFL. Why is the NFL a winner? Because they're going to get the Super Bowl that they most wanted. If you had given them any of the matchups that they could have had coming out of championship weekend, the one that I think they absolutely would have taken was Kansas City, San Francisco. It's a rematch of the 2019 Super Bowl, which is far enough in the rearview mirror for people not to be sick of it, uh, but but still familiar enough for people to sort of crave a rematch. It's it pits uh, the you know the the hot team, at least from a fan perspective in the NFL, the Chiefs, who have gained massive numbers of bandwagon fans because of their success in the last several years. And oh, by the way, let's not discount the Taylor Swift effect. Taylor Swift has, has brought literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of new fans to the NFL. Obviously when she and Travis Kelsey started dating the numbers on, for example, the chiefs Instagram page, uh, 300,000 new users the first week, phenomenal. And so the NFL gets a broadened audience with the Chiefs and then they get to match the Chiefs up against one of the most popular national franchises. The 49ers have a big national following because of their success back in the day, back in the 80s and 90s, like we were talking about with Ronnie Lott. And you know, while Baltimore, I think, was a, a, a good story, Baltimore is still a fairly new team. The Ravens have only been around since the 1990s. They're a regional team, not a national team. The Lions are a great story, great story. And, and I think that uh, the NFL would have been happy to have Detroit, but they don't bring the, the the sheer fan base to the game that San Francisco does. San Francisco's got more star power than Detroit. I think a lot of the Detroit players are still probably fairly anonymous to, to most casual NFL fans. Uh, and so the NFL gets its dream postseason matchup of Kansas city against San Francisco in Las Vegas, where there's going to be a heck of a show. And if you're bringing Taylor Swift and her whole entourage, you know, what a, what a better, is there a better place to bring it than Vegas? All right. Number three, third winner of the week, third on the up, on the up list. I'm going to, I'm going to go with, with the new offensive coordinator in Pittsburgh, Arthur Smith. Now, I don't know if this is going to turn out to be a great hire in Pittsburgh. I like it. I'm not like head over heels in love with it, I like it. I like it because Arthur Smith does a lot of things that Steelers fans will recognize and that he fits the identity of who the Pittsburgh Steelers are. He brings with him uh, a reputation for building solid run games, for being physical, for using big personnel doing basically things that the Pittsburgh Steelers have been doing for a long, long time. It's going to look and feel like Pittsburgh Steelers football. Uh, It's going to be a better version of Pittsburgh Steelers football than the offense they've been running for the last several years. I'm pretty, pretty confident of that. Uh, But really, man, the the reason, you know, there are lots of reasons to be. Skeptical too, right? Arthur Smith did not do a great job developing the quarterbacks down in Atlanta, in particular young Desmond Ritter. And that's a concern when you as a Steelers fan, you think to yourself, well, the biggest weakness on the Pittsburgh roster is the quarterback position. Will he be able to develop Kenny Pickett uh, and or Mason Rudolph if he stays, who knows? But that's a major question mark, right? So, so you have a pretty good sense that Smith is going to, uh, you know, build the offense around big personnel and the run game. But Pittsburgh's going to need to throw the ball; it's a passing league. And if they can't bring Kenny Pickett along, they'll continue to struggle. So, a serious question as far as that goes, and really, that's going to be a wait and see. But the reason I'm putting Arthur Smith on the list is because, man, what a great opportunity for him to go to Pittsburgh and and work under Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin's been phenomenal at taking coaches that have either been fired or have been in difficult situations and sort of revitalizing their career. He did it with Bruce Arians who, you know, went on after being Tomlin's offensive coordinator to get a head coaching job out out in Arizona. He did it with Brian Flores, taking Brian Flores uh, after he was fired by Miami and had his sort of lawsuit and issues with the league and giving Flores a year in Pittsburgh to rebuild his reputation and, and get back into the game and make an impact. And then he goes on and gets hired as the defensive coordinator in Minnesota. Uh, I mean, he did it with Mike Munchak, who had you know been fired as the head coach in Tennessee, and then came on in Pittsburgh to be the offensive, or I'm sorry, the, the offensive line coach. Uh, and and you know, Munchak, man, you talk to Steelers fans about Mike Munchak; he is revered. Steelers fans would love for him to show back up. Uh, he and Arthur Smith have a relationship from their time in Tennessee together. They would love for Munchak to show back up in Pittsburgh. So I think Arthur Smith, who probably has designs on being a head coach again someday, is in the perfect place to do it. He's he's uh, going to fit in nicely in Pittsburgh. He's going to be able to run his style of offense with a, with a, a, a team that's built for it. And he's going to be with a head coach in Mike Tomlin, who knows a thing or two about how to rejuvenate uh, the coaching careers of his assistants. So while uh, Mike Tomlin doesn't have much of a coaching tree of younger coaches that have gone on to become head coaches, he does have a track record of being a great mentor to some of the veteran coaches around the league. So that's our three up list uh, for the week. The Kansas City Chiefs, the NFL, and Arthur Smith, the new offense coordinator of the Pittsburgh Steelers. All right, we're going to take a break. And on the flip side, we'll look at the three down list, man. who Who had a bad week? Uh, who? Where, where did it go wrong for for some of these people or entities involved with the NFL? And then in the last segment of the show, we're gonna we're gonna talk just a little bit about uh, a little a little NFL uh, Cha- Super Bowl preview and talk a little bit about how do you prepare for a championship game? I'll talk a little bit about some of my experience in in those contests, and obviously we're talking about a much greater level with the Super Bowl. But I think that there are some considerations. Uh, in preparing for a championship contest that are fairly similar. So come on back after the break. Welcome back to the call sheet, Kevin Smith with you. And in part two, we're going to continue with our three up, three down by looking at some of the individuals or entities who, who had a bad week football-wise or, or as related to the NFL. And, and then we'll end with some, some preview thoughts on game planning for the upcoming Super Bowl. So so our three down list. Well, we talked about the Kansas City Chiefs being up. And unfortunately, on the opposite side of that is the team they beat, the Baltimore Ravens in particular, their quarterback, Lamar Jackson. Uh, tough, tough championship game for Jackson because of several reasons at one obviously he couldn't get over that hump of winning the big playoff game to get Baltimore to a championship as a matter of fact uh you know Jackson now falls to 2 and 4 in his playoff career he he played poorly in the contest turned the ball over twice was sacked four times i think he was he was very indecisive in the pocket Kansas City really blitzed the daylights out of Jackson i mean they were not very threatened by Baltimore's receivers down the field. And in many instances, they were they were willing to send five and even six rushers after Jackson and leaving themselves in man-to-man coverage. One of the big sacks in the contest came late in the fourth or third quarter with Baltimore driving down to around the Kansas City 40-yard line, uh, down 17-7, badly in need of points. And on a third down play, man, they, they sent six after Jackson and played cover zero. And, and it really looked like Jackson had Zay Flowers open to the post for what, what could have been a, a touchdown. But, you know, the pressure got there before Jackson could get his eyes to Flowers on the backside of the route. Uh, he took the sack, and at the end of the play, Jackson kind of slammed the football uh, against his thigh in disgust and then sort of flipped it at the official and stormed off the field. In uh, and, and another, another instance, Jackson took his helmet off as he reached the sideline, slammed it into the ground. Uh, There was, you know, you you could see him talking to himself at various times. Just a a game where you really felt as though Kansas City, not only were they playing sound football, good coverage, good tackling, doing a nice job of keeping Jackson in the pocket so he couldn't get out and run, uh, but they were in his head. You know, they were mixing coverages. They were causing him to to, uh, hold the ball longer than he wanted to in the pocket, be a little bit late getting it out. A couple times Jackson just – just missed some guys because he was pre- he was a little late to process. So you know, an excellent job by Kansas City defense coordinator Steve Spagnolo and another frustrating game for Lamar Jackson, which brings us to the question of whether or not, all right, Lamar Jackson can get over that hump in the playoffs to the Super Bowl. We won't know the answer until if and when he does it. I th- he's certainly capable. I mean, he's probably going to win the MVP award and become a two-time MVP. And if you're a two-time MVP, the answer to the question of whether or not you can get your team to the Super Bowl is probably yes. But until you do it, right, people are going to ask the questions I'm asking right now. And it feels as though the window for Jackson and the Ravens may, may be closing just a little bit. He's he's still a fairly young quarterback, but he's a guy who relies so much on his athleticism. He's been dinged up at times in his career. Uh, and it, and the AFC is strong, and there's a lot of young talent in the AFC. So Baltimore had everything they wanted this this year. They had home field advantage, the 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 AFC Championship game at home, uh, the MVP, likely MVP at, at quarterback, playing great football, and a Kansas City team coming in to play them that was widely perceived as you know not the best version of itself at least over the last four or five years, and they couldn't get it done. So rough week.
0: Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
1: Also a rough week for conspiracy theorists. Let's put them at number two on our three down list. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, the, look, The Call Sheet is a show that is overtly non-political. I do not like to talk about politics on this show. I have no interest in weighing in on heavy political topics. I think one of the reasons people love sports is, is because it gets you away from that that garbage. And I'm also a government and politics teacher, so I do this on the regular uh in my day job, man. So uh, I don't want to go go talk about it, but but it, it's hard to ignore some of the noise that's been coming out uh from the conspiracy theory crowd about Taylor Swift. I know I brought her up again. I promise this will be well probably won't be the last time. I, you know, she's she's everywhere. But you know, there's some James Bond type stuff going on with this wacky conspiracy theory now. That's claiming that her romance with Travis Kelsey is a plot to rig the Super Bowl and get Joe Biden reelected. That is that is fascinating. Um, I mean, you know, there you know there, there's a bunch of fairly high ranking Republicans right now who are who are, who are advancing this theory. Uh, I think that you know, I think that there's a, an element. Of both the right and the left that sees a conspiracy under every stone. I've certainly dabbled in conspiracy theories in my life. I was when I was in college, I wrote a 25-page paper on why I thought the mafia killed JFK. <laughs> so and I don't believe that to be true at all anymore. But when I was 20, 21 years old, I you know, it, it sounded pretty damn good. And there was a lot of research out there that that would lead you in that direction. Uh, but you know, I mean, Fox news hosted an actual discussion on its network this weekend with a former FBI agent. And the segment was titled is Taylor Swift, a Pentagon asset. I mean, that basically the the theory goes like this, that, that, that the Travis Kelsey Taylor Swift love story is not at all a real love story, but sort of a deep state psychological operation designed to attract attention to the NFL so that Taylor Swift can reveal at the Super Bowl that she is for Joe Biden and to lure her, you know, millions of followers into that argument and to vote for Joe Biden. Um, You know, I mean, stuff all over Twitter about how uh, Taylor Swift is now interfering with the election and, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy, who, who was running for president, Uh, you know, now he's, you know, has, has since ended his campaign. I mean, he suggested that there's an actual plot between Taylor Swift uh, and the NFL to boost Joe Biden's ratings because they are sagging through a, a fake Swift Kelsey relationship. So, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say anything more about this again, man. I'm really trying to avoid the political discussion, but for me, this isn't even a political discussion. This is a discussion about, trying to stay tethered to reality, man. Uh, and I just hope that despite some of the stuff that's on the internet, um, people will just really, man, take a deep breath and, you know, let let, let Taylor and Travis have their moment. All right. So the third one uh, on our three down list, Bill Belichick, speaking of conspiracy theories, right? There are those who believe, right, that, that the NFL has conspired with Belichick at times to, to make some of the things that he's been accused of go away like uh you know deflate gate and spy gate and all these all these gates when he was the head coach in New England but uh but with the Atlanta Falcons deciding to hire Raheem Morris and with 5 out of the 7 NFL vacancies that popped up at the end of the regular season now filled with only the Seattle job and the Washington Commanders job remaining it it seems unlikely that Bill Belichick is going to find a head coaching gig. Uh it, it really felt like you know he interviewed twice in Atlanta and I I always thought I mean I I did a show an, or a segment on our show a couple of weeks ago where I su- suggested that Belichick would go to Atlanta because I really believed that Falcons owner Arthur Blank who's 82 years old and probably very, very eager to win a Super Bowl, would would take a shot with Belichick, would basically see Belichick as the guy who could produce one fastest and and wouldn't really kind of take a gamble on a younger head coach or a less established one. But that's really what he did with Raheem Morris. And, uh, you know, in, in the process, of course, rejecting Belichick. It seems like listening to reports coming out of Atlanta, that part of the issue there was that Belichick wanted some control over some things that the Falcons were not willing to grant him. And that knowing that Belichick at age 72 would be a short timer, they didn't want to really turn their franchise upside down and give him whatever he wanted, knowing that he could walk out the door after a year or two. But, you know, Bill Belichick does not seem a likely candidate to land the job in Seattle. That might wind up going to Mike McDonald, the Ravens, D.C., Um so, you know, where does that leave him? You know, I mean, there, there could, you never know, there could be another opening that pops up at some point, or there might be something working or in the works right now. We we just don't know. But uh, it feels like Belichick's going to be shut out from this hiring cycle. And it's fair to wonder, will he ever get back in? A year from now, when he's pushing 73 years old, and he's been out of the league for a year, it would, it would really take the right franchise uh, to to take a gamble on him at that point. So Bill Belichick, 15 wins shy of breaking Don Shula's record for the most wins in NFL history, may have to wait a little bit longer to try to break that record. Okay, on to some final thoughts about the upcoming Super Bowl between the Chiefs and and the 49ers, and, and we're going to really do a, a deeper dive on this game next week and next week's show, but I want to take just a couple minutes here at the end to talk a little bit about what's going on right now with the two coaching staffs. Here we are the Thursday uh, of of the week of the open week between the two. There's still about 10, gay, gay, uh, 10 days left before the actual Super Bowl, and both teams are now deep into their preparation. I'm sure with a 17-game regular season and a couple of playoff games to digest, that the amount of film being poured over by both co- coaching staffs is phenomenal, right? And really, one of the things you got to try to do. So, if we if we, if we want to really sort of provide a focus to this last segment here, the focus is on how do you go about the preparation for a championship game? And one of the things you got to be careful of is trying to come up with an answer for everything that that that, that team can do. That is easier said than done because, again, with 17 regular season games and a couple of playoff games, you have a massive amount of film to digest. You have hundreds of snaps on both sides of the ball. You have dozens of plays, formations, motions, shifts, stunts, protections, fronts, whatever. I mean, anything scheme-wise you can think of, it's going to get charted. It's going to get studied because both the coaching staffs right now are spending so much time looking for any little tendency that they can find that will give them an advantage. They want they want to know as much as possible what they can expect from their opponent. And then once they, they figure that out, then they get into the next step, which is trying to figure out how the the opponent might counter that, or deviate from that to create some confusion, to create some red herring, so to speak. Did they, you know, what do they plant during the season that they're going to purposely deviate from now as we get to the Super Bowl? You can actually uh, create paralysis by analysis when it comes to the digestion of all of this material. You can actually get so overwhelmed, with, with the numbers, the tendencies, the charts, the metrics, that you don't know exactly how you want to proceed. You don't know what you want to take away. And so I think the big thing that these coaching staffs have to do over the next couple of days, because again, th- I think this week is predominantly spent you know, breaking down the opponent, and next week will be uh, the, the week where they really dive into uh, the, the, not just the install of their game plan, but the execution of it. You got to be really careful, man, that you don't overload your brain with information so that you don't overload your players' brains with information. I mean, a slow mind equals slow feet on the football field. When you're, when you're busy processing, then you don't play as fast. And I, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll tell one quick story, man. I, and this goes back a long ways, but it's a great, it's a good story. So if I if I go back to 1999, our high school team in 1999, uh, we had played our big rival. Our, ironically, our biggest rival, the school that I coach at right now, is my alma mater. So I, I feel very conflicted uh, when we have these rivalry games because it's the school I went to, uh, and and we and we play on the on the field that I played on, and 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 we you know it's an intense rivalry. We don't like each other, and so. So yeah, I, you know, I have these sort of nostalgic feelings about the school that, at which I played, but uh, I want to beat their brains in because, you know, I'm the head coach of the rival now. So anyway, if we go back to, to 1999, we played them in the regular season and lost to them. Uh, we, we limped into the playoffs, kind of beat up our best player who went on to play tight end at Villanova and wound up in camp with the Dallas Cowboys, tore up his knee in the last regular season game and was done for the year. So so we went into the playoffs. Uh, at seven and four, won a couple of playoff games and got to the championship game at Rutgers University. And our rival school went in 11 and 0, and the number one ranked team in South Jersey. They had already beaten us in the regular season, and we wound up playing them in a rematch in the championship game at Rutgers. And we were now playing them without our best player, uh, our tight end, you know, again, who was all everything. And when we all when we got together as a staff, one of the big things we we had to figure out was how do you know, how do we beat these guys with our best player out? And we threw up a million ideas on the board, you know, a million different things about, let's do this, let's do that, blah blah blah. And at the end of the day, really what we decided to do was to just take everything we'd been doing well all year long, double down on that and add just one wrinkle to each concept. So so if we had a counterplay that we loved, we decided that we would we would keep that counterplay but we would just run it from a different formation or if we had a pass concept that we that we loved same deal we would we would simply you know show a different look or use a different motion or a different personnel group to get to that same concept and and our hope of course was that maybe we would just confuse our opponent a little bit by adding some wrinkles that they hadn't seen before and you know, lo and behold, man, you know, we knocked him off. We upset him. It was a great game. We beat him 21-18. They had a field goal on the last play of the game to tie the game and send it to overtime. They missed it. And we got to run around and celebrate on the field up there at Rutgers. And it was really one of the great football memories of, of my, my early part of my career. And talking to a couple of their coaches afterwards was very interesting because one of their coaches remarked to me, he said, You had you guys had us so confused with just those little wrinkles that you added because we had your game plans down to the point where we could recite them in our sleep. We had studied the film, every single film of yours over and over and over again. We knew every little thing you were going to do inside and out. And and we had it so memorized that we, that once you showed us something different, it kind of screwed with our, our kids' heads because they were so, They were so laser focused on the game plan we had created. And I think that that's a really interesting comment because it speaks to how in these championship games, the volume of information that you're digesting and that you're and that you have access to can sometimes be more of a a curse than a blessing. It can sometimes cause you to to either overthink things to to, uh, overanalyze things, to get your guys so prepared for one thing that you can't adapt when you see something else. And that'll be fascinating, right? In the end, it's going to come down to blocking and tackling, right? Whoever blocks and tackles better is going to win the football game. But you can guarantee that both San Francisco and Kansas City will present wrinkles for their opponent that the other has not seen before. And how clear-minded will the coaching staffs be? How prepared will they be to adjust on the fly? and how ready will they be to take the things they know about their opponent and mix them with adaptations that for which they're not prepared ahead of time to be able to to change on the fly uh and and get that win in the Super Bowl it'll be a fascinating chess match all right lots more on the Super Bowl on next week's show as well as episode number 43 an old school behind the steel curtain fans that means we get to talk about cliff Harris. And if you don't know, then you don't know. But if you do, man, Cliff Harris, that guy is still a punk. All right. This is Kevin Smith. Have a great week, everybody.